good morning. Uh, my name is Joe Lichty. I'm the director of the Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies program here at Goshen. And I'm pleased this morning to have the opportunity to introduce my friend Alan Epp Weaver, who's going to be on campus for a couple days here as a visiting scholar. Since last fall, Alan is a doctoral student in theology at the University of Chicago, but that's not why we've invited him. It's the previous 11 years uh, when he and his wife, Sonia, worked as directors of Mennonite Central Committee programs in Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq and where the breadth and depth of Alan's work with local people has given him a most sophisticated insight into the political, cultural, and religious issues of that region. I first met Alan in the summer of 2004. I was in Jerusalem participating in a, in a scholarly exchange with Hebrew University, um, and in an intense week, uh, many, many speakers. Alan was the only Gentile speaker that Hebrew University had invited to speak to us, and I think quite possibly the only non-Zionist. And I took that as a good measure of the broad respect that Alan's work had earned him. Alan's done a lot of writing, both scholarly and popular, on Middle East-related issues. Uh, in, this, in 2007, he's had two books come out. A, a, a editor, he's editor of Under Vine and Fig Tree, Biblical Theologies of Land and the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, and also editor with Peter Dula of Borders and Bridges, Mennonite Witness in a Religiously Diverse World. And next year, he's coming out with a collection of essays called States of Exile, Visions of Diaspora, Witness, and Return. This morning, Alan's going to be speaking to us on the theme of Palestinian refugee rights, memory against forgetting. Welcome, Alan. Milan Kundera, in his novel, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, writes that the struggle of people against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. In contexts where the victors seek to erase the textual and material traces of the vanquished and to obscure the bloody means by which victory was obtained, acts of memory become political acts, disturbing and challenging dominant narratives. Thus, when Palestinians make pilgrimage to the ruins of their ancestral homes in places such as Birim, Mujaidal, and Sohmata, walking around the remaining stones and narrating the life of the villages and their destruction by the Israeli military, they recreate landscapes from which Palestinians have been removed and name as a Nakba, or catastrophe, what, what prevailing Israeli narratives call redemption or when communities of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, or elsewhere in the diaspora compile memory books for their villages, collecting the history and folklore of places such as Ein Haud, Beit Atab, or Lifta, they put the more than 500 destroyed Palestinian towns and villages back on the map, thus sustaining the hope that exile will not be forever, that the day of return will not be postponed indefinitely. These acts of memory are embodiments of what the German Jewish thinker, Walter Benjamin, called the historian's task of brushing against the grain of history, of disturbing the tapestry of official accounts and state narratives in pursuit of silenced lives and voices. The historian's vocation is thus a political vocation, to be an agent of memory against forgetting.
Unfortunately, churches in the West have sometimes functioned as, as agents of forgetting regarding Palestinians, failing to grapple with the desire of Palestinian refugees, both Christian and Muslim, to return home. By maintaining a strange silence concerning Palestinian refugees, and by refusing to undertake a theological engagement with and critique of Zionism, Western churches, I contend, have been complicit with those who had put an end to the Palestinian refugee issue, to the idea of Palestinian refugee return, by a simple denial of Palestinian rights of return and restitution. After examining the nature of and reasons for this silence, I proceed to argue that the church should be concerned about the end, as in the goal, of return. In describing Western Christian approaches to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the simple thing to do would be to contrast two phenomena. On the one hand, one has Christian Zionism of the premillennial dispensationalist variety with its luminaries, political action committees, and pop culture, like the Left Behind series, all informed by a particular theology that reads the biblical story as pointing towards an apocalyptic end of history in which the founding of the State of Israel and the ingathering of the exiled Jewish people play decisive roles in precipitating the last battle of Armageddon with its decisive defeat of Satan. Now, not surprisingly, Palestinian aspirations and rights are at best irrelevant in such a theological vision. And at worst, Palestinians are obstacles to apocalyptic triumph, obstacles to be removed. And to this form of Christian Zionism, one could then contrast efforts by various Christian bodies to explore selective divestment as a tool to pressure Israel to end its military occupation. These Western churches have ties to the Palestinian church and have been moved by their Palestinian co-religionists to work for justice. Or one could contrast this type of Christian Zionism with the advocacy efforts of progressive evangelical, mainline Protestant, and Catholic churches for a two-state resolution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Whereas Christian Zionists of the Tim LaHaye and Pat Robertson variety insist that all of Palestine is the exclusive patrimony of the Jewish people, these churches, in contrast, press for an end to occupation and the creation of a Palestinian state next to Israel. But this contrast would fail to get at root questions that Western churches need to address. In comparison to the lurid and arguably heretical theology of the left-behind style of Christian Zionism, the support of Christian churches and ecumenical advocacy groups against the occupation and for a two-state solution, and the tentative exploration by Christian churches of divestment initiatives, are, of course, preferable. But what's glaringly absent from these initiatives is any sustained discussion of Palestinian refugees. For churches captivated by dispensationalist theologies in which Zionism and the founding of the State of Israel represent key events in an apocalyptic scenario, Palestinian refugees do not represent any particular moral problem. Like all Palestinians, they're viewed as interlopers onto and usurpers of the territory rightly belonging to the Jewish people. For the so-called mainline churches, however, those churches that have been engaged over decades in various forms of peace advocacy related to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Palestinian refugees do represent a problem, for their very existence raises questions and issues that Western churches would rather avoid. One finds only limited mention of Palestinian refugees 
let alone refugee rights, of return and restitution in the Middle East resolutions of mainline Protestant churches framed in terms of ending the occupation and support for a two-state solution. The primary reason for the scant attention paid to Palestinian refugees, I would suggest, is that facing the Palestinian refugee issue forces the church to determine what it thinks about Zionism and about Israel as a Jewish state. And throughout, I'd encourage us to think about Jewish state in scare quotes, just in terms of underlining how indeterminate that phrase is. Support for a two-state solution is comfortable for many Western churches because it allows them to say, we affirm Israel's right to exist, we affirm Israel's legitimacy as a Jewish state, we're simply against military occupation. Calls to end the occupation fit easily into this framework. Advocacy for refugee rights, however, complicates the picture, for it forces the difficult question of what the Zionist call for a Jewish state means. Rather than tackling this challenging head conversation head on, the churches allow Palestinian refugees, along with Palestinians inside Israel, to fade from view. This reticence on the subject of Palestinian refugees, stemming from a reluctance to engage in a theological assessment of Zionism, could, I argue, be considered a second type of Christian Zionism, one which implicitly grants the Zionist project theological legitimacy. Two recent statements arising from Christian Jewish dialogue initiatives exemplify this tacit embrace of Zionism. One comes, from, one comes from a Catholic Jewish conference held in Buenos Aires in July of 2004, and the other is a May 2005 report emerging from a series of Jewish Protestant conversations at the University of Chicago. Both statements follow the same line of reasoning. To question Israel's military occupation with its attendant human rights abuses might be legitimate, but what falls beyond the pale of acceptable criticism are questions concerning the justice of the state of Israel's founding or about the Zionist project of establishing and maintaining a Jewish state. The Buenos Aires statement declares, quote, a rejection of anti-Semitism in all its forms, including anti-Zionism as a more recent manifestation of anti-Semitism, unquote. The report emerging from the conversation at the University of Chicago cautions that, quote, those who criticize Israeli policies should take care to ensure that such criticism not threaten Judaism, the Jewish people, or the legitimacy of the state of Israel, unquote. The Christian participants in the Chicago Dialogue, whose liberal theological orientation is far removed from the fundamentalist orientation of dispensationalist Christian Zionism, proceed to affirm as an act, quote, of justice, the establishment of a Jewish state after 2,000 years of Jewish exile, wandering, and homelessness, unquote. The document thus draws on biblical imagery concerning the pain and the anguish of exile, affirming the Jewish state as an antidote to homelessness. Such an approach both mirrors the standard Zionist negation of the diaspora, or in Hebrew, shalilat ha-galut, and appears to assume without question that the only political alternative to exile is exclusivist nationalist sovereignty. Both statements thus warn that critiques of Zionism and of the quote-unquote legitimacy of the state of Israel are akin to anti-Semitism. While the meaning of anti-Zionism in this context is left unclear, 
Zionism is implicitly defined by these statements as the movement to establish a Jewish state, again in quotes. So anti-Zionism must therefore be understood to be a theological or political position that at least questions, if not opposes, the justice of establishing and maintaining a Jewish state. Recognizing the state of Israel's legitimacy is bound up from this perspective with affirming it as a Jewish state. A reader of these documents is left with the understanding that Christians, while they might criticize particular Israeli policies or actions, should embrace Zionism and thus recognize the justice of the establishment of a Jewish state. Now what Jewish state, I've tried to indicate already, means in these types of claims is often left undefined and ambiguous, the essential matter at stake unarticulated. The key issue that goes unstated in these claims is demography. In contemporary Israeli political discourse, the question of the Jewishness of the Israeli state is repeatedly tied to questions of demography. Proponents of the disengagement plan and the wall, the separation barrier or the apartheid wall as some of its opponents call it, argue that separation from Palestinians is required in order to protect Israel's Jewish majority from the demographic threat represented by Palestinians in the occupied territories. Israeli officials, meanwhile, when arguing the Palestinian refugee return, when arguing against Palestinian refugee return, routinely describe calls to allow refugee return as attacks on Israel's character as a Jewish state. Israel's identity as a Jewish state on the terms of this political discourse was and is tied to creating and maintaining a Jewish demographic majority within particular territorial boundaries. This project, many Israeli demographers warn, is under threat. Haifa University demographer Arnon Sofer has been the most prominent of many Israeli voices warning of demographic disaster for Israeli Jews. The number of Palestinians between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, that is in both Israel and the occupied territories, or within the boundaries of British Mandate Palestine, Sofer has warned, will equal the number of Jews in the land by 2010. Israeli politicians from across the political spectrum view this demographic reality with alarm. Public opinion researchers have found that, quote, the strong desire for a separation, even a unilateral one, is connected to a fear among the overwhelming majority of the Jewish public regarding the emergence of a de facto, if not de jure, binational state, unquote. The fear of an emerging binational reality has been put more pointedly by Israeli labor politician Avraham Burg. Quote, I am not afraid of weapons and terrorism. I am afraid of the day that all of them, the Palestinians, will put down their weapons and say, one man, one vote. Unquote. Demographic fears coupled with a commitment to Zionism understood in terms of a linkage of demographic hegemony and territorial control, explain why nearly all Israeli Jewish politicians concur in rejecting any significant return of Palestinian refugees to homes and properties inside Israel, arguing that this would threaten the Jewish character of Israel. Thus, the Palestine Liberation Organization, PLO, has continued to call, at least on paper, for Palestinian refugees to be allowed to return to their homes if they so choose, and that in turn has been taken as a sign that the Palestinians reject Israel as a state. 
It's not sufficient, the argument goes, to recognize Israel, as the PLO did in the Oslo Accords. One must recognize Israel as a Jewish state, that is, its right to maintain a Jewish majority. Now, if Jewish state and Zionism are understood as projects to create and maintain demographic and political hegemony over a particular territory, then the following conclusions would flow from the Chicago and Buenos Aires critiques of anti-Zionism and their affirmations of the justice of Israel as a Jewish state. First, the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, Christians and Muslims, from their homes and villages in 1948 was, if tragic, also necessary. If Zionism meant creating a state with a Jewish majority in historic Palestine, and if one affirms Zionism as a, as a just vision, then one must view some form of transfer, that's the operative euphemism, of Palestinians from their homes as imperative, even just. Second, it follows that any return of these Palestinian refugees that would undermine the Jewish majority must be prevented. The logic of the Chicago and Buenos Aires documents thus falls in line with the Israeli characterization of calls for refugee return as anti-Semitic, as anti-Semitic threats to Israel's Jewish identity. Both statements could thus be aptly, aptly characterized as implicitly Christian Zionist, albeit in a markedly different way from the uh, apocalyptic theology normally bearing that name. Now, Western churches, I would contend, need to question the logic that links the Jewishness of Israel to exclusive dis discourses of demographic and territorial control. And part of breaking this logic would mean for the churches to become much more vocal than they have been regarding support for the rights of Palestinian refugees. However, even if Western churches continue to ignore Palestinian refugees, realities on the ground will make a critical examination of Zionism more difficult to avoid. Championing the two-state solution has, one could argue, allowed mainline churches to avoid a serious evaluation of Zionism as an ideology and a practice. The two-state solution appeals to liberalism's sense of fairness. There are two peoples, so there should be two states. It also appeals to the Christian concern for reconciliation. When the two peoples each have their own states, the logic goes, enmity will be transformed into, first into good neighborliness and then into friendship. Israel's unilateral separation or convergence or disengagement plan, however, writes the epitaph for a two-state solution based on the 1949 armistice line or the green line and shows how the state of Israel has effectively hijacked the rhetoric of the two-state solution in order to solidify its permanent control over the occupied territories. When Israeli politicians like Ariel Sharon or Ehud Olmert, who over their careers have adamantly rejected talk of a Palestinian state and who have insisted that Israel's control over the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip did not constitute occupation, when these politicians began calling for an end to the occupation, and indicating that they would accept the creation of a Palestinian state. This did not reflect a change of heart or of policy, but was instead a skillful manipulation of language. Ending the occupation in this language regime becomes code for the withdrawal of the Israeli military from Palestinian population centers while maintaining firm control over movement between Palestinian cities and villages and advancing the de facto, albeit not de jure, annexation of large settlement blocks. 
The fate of the Gaza Strip is instructive. When Israel dismantled its settlements inside the Strip and withdrew its forces, it declared that the occupation of Gaza was over, even as it maintained firm control over the passage of persons and goods into Gaza, turning Gaza into a large open-air prison for its nearly 1.5 million Palestinian inhabitants. Accepting Palestinian statehood, in turn, comes to mean an Israeli willingness to allow Palestinians to call the discontiguous parcels of land to which they are now confined a state, if they so wish. In short, the language of Palestinian statehood and the rhetoric of ending the occupation, once fervently rejected by Israel, has been co-opted in order to gain legitimacy for the long-standing Israeli attempt to control all of the occupied territories while divesting itself of the responsibilities for the Palestinian population international law places on occupying powers. Western churches have been slow to recognize how seriously distorted the discourse of statehood has become. In the conference halls and seminar rooms of Washington and Tel Aviv, or in, in Annapolis, coming up in the, later this month, roadmaps to a Palestinian state have become exercises in trying to find a Palestinian leadership willing to accept the fragmented reservations created by Israel's walls, fences, and checkpoints as a state and as the basis for an end to the conflict. However, the advocacy of Western churches for a two-state solution continues to operate as if Israel, with the United States' blessing, was not actively engaged in obliterating the territorial basis for such a solution. Palestinians have increasingly begun to question the feasibility and the desirability of the two-state vision. As the walls, fences, and checkpoint regimes throughout the occupied territories are finalized, and as the success of Israel's colonial enterprise becomes apparent, Christians serious about working for the long-term landed security of Palestinians and Israelis alike for a resolution of the conflict rather than the protracted containment of it through militarized fortifications will have to move beyond advocacy for two states towards advocacy for the dismantling of discriminatory laws and institutions throughout Palestine Israel, including the dismantling of the legal and political structures that prevent refugees from returning home. For Christians, rights are not ultimately ends in themselves. Rather, they make sense within a teleological framework, within that is, a vision of the broader political good to be nurtured and developed through the securing and implementation of those rights. The political telos, or goal, or end, towards which Christian action should be directed is a holistic vision of reconciliation in the context of landed security. This vision is captured well by two portions of scripture. First, the prophet Micah's vision of a day in which God's people will live secure under vine and fig tree with no one to make them afraid. And second, the proclamation by the writer of Ephesians that in Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. Christian concern about refugee rights is not about retribution, and not even solely about restitution. Rather, Christian concern about Palestinian refugee rights is driven by a concern for future Palestinian-Israeli reconciliation. After the horrors of the Shoah, or the Holocaust, it's understandable that the idea of Israel as a safe haven with a Jewish majority would resonate with many Jews. But, one might ask, must such, must such a safe haven 
be tied to a project of maintaining and protecting a Jewish majority by any and all means? Might not a binational future in one, in which, in one state be one in which Palestinians and Israelis alike both sit securely under vine and fig tree? The current reality in Palestine-Israel is, after all, already a binational reality of two peoples within one sovereign state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, a warped binationalism of ethnocratic domination. Remembering Palestinian refugees opens up the, opens up the possibility of moving beyond the distorted binational reality of the present toward a binational future in which the presence of the other is viewed not as a threat, but as an opportunity for reconciliation. Such reconciliation, however, will not emerge from the practices and ideologies of historical amnesia. For the church to be an agent of reconciliation, it must be an agent of memory, not forgetting. Just want to highlight uh, two public events, uh, opportunities to listen to Alan, to talk with Alan. Tomorrow night in Humble Center, 7.30, Alan will be speaking on the theme of the Ephesian vision against the Iron Wall, which is precisely reflections on those practices of reconciliation that counter the politics of separation and dispossession. Today in the, in the cafeteria, uh, Alan and I will try to find a table toward the back of the cafeteria about 12 o'clock or so uh, to talk about Middle East, um, Mennonite Central Committee, whatever you care to talk about. Thank you. <laughs>